0: not something that our culture today understands, and understandably so. If you've never been told, if you've never been taught, it's not your fault. And yet, to to suggest that maybe there's less belief today than there was 50 years ago is actually to miss the point, because we are still believers We may not be believers in God or believers in Jesus, but we all as humans are believers. We all believe constantly, don't we? We believe things and therefore we make decisions. You make decisions all day, every day based on belief. You believe that the chair would hold you so you sat on it. You wouldn't if it looked a bit too rickety, you know? You believe that certain sources of information are trustworthy while others can be taken with a pinch of salt. You can have beliefs based on... Uh, past experience or, or based on guesswork, whatever, about uh, natural laws of science, about whether gravity is going to kick in if you <coughs> jump out of the window. You know, there's all sorts of beliefs, and we're all believers in, in a variety of things. But what we're going to talk about this month, in in these next four weeks, is the real building blocks of belief, the the real, the, the roots, the, the basics, the foundations of belief, because I'm convinced that at the core, if you dig down below everything else, there are four basic building blocks for any belief system. And there are four basic building blocks, four basic questions that our answer to these questions will determine how we live our lives, uh, how we uh, direct our lives, the decisions we make, the, the lives we lead, and the eternity to come. Everything is built on our understanding of these four questions, these four basic building blocks. And so they're really important. And we're going to take one today and one next week and, and you know, so on for four weeks. And we're just going to, to ask a very simple question. And then we're going to open the Bible and let the Bible point us to uh, some clarity on those four questions. And I think this is critically important. Before we get to the first question, uh, this is critically important because the Bible teaches us that we cannot simply assume that we know the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We live in a world full of lies. We live in a world full of deceit and, and confusion. In fact, the Bible even tells us in numerous places that within the church, there would be false teachers. That there would be people who would come and they would, they would put a certain spin on things, and they would present things a certain way, and they would, they would change the truth. We've got to be wary of that. In fact, you read it in the Bible time and again that there's these dangerous, uh, sinister influences. If you look through church history, uh, you've got 2,000 years of history of false, peop- uh, false teachers bringing false ideas. Uh, and yet today, sometimes we can just sit in sort of naive optimism, thinking, well, I, th- I know what the Bible says, and I've heard that history's full of this type of person, but, but we're okay. We can spot error when we see it. I don't think we should be so naive. I suppose we we, we sometimes go to the default idea of, well, basically it's it's the, I suppose you could call it the Ron Seal test. Does it, you know, what does it say on the tin? That's the important thing. If someone on the tin, on the outside, says Christian, then we trust them. Or or maybe if they say, you know, our kind of Christian. You, You know, they come from our kind of church. Bible believing, evangelical, Protestant, all these different labels, right? If they've got the right labels, then we can relax, they're safe. Really? You see, the Bible doesn't just say that false ideas will come in from the outside. It says we're gonna yeah, we're gonna get to that. And and it does, the Bible says not only do do people come in from the outside, they come from within. People within who look like, act like, who 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 have the right labels They can be false teachers too. And so simply recognizing what church they're in doesn't protect us. And so maybe we go to another level. We say, you know what, I need to ask some questions. I need to ask this person some questions to determine whether or not they are trustworthy. And so what kind of questions? Well, let's go for the important ones. Okay, Uh, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe the Bible? Do you believe that God inspired the Bible? Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins? Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Do you believe that we are saved by believing in Jesus? And we can come up with this whole list of core important questions. But what if somebody can say yes to all of those and still be a false teacher? Ooh, that makes us feel a bit shaky, doesn't it? We had two people in our house this week that... Uh, wanted to talk bible with us and we were more than happy to talk bible with them and they could have said yes more or less to all of those questions they may have meant something different but they could affirm the things that we were saying and yet what they were teaching was the exact opposite of what the bible says you see even the questions we ask sometimes are too superficial they don't go deep enough we've got to dig down to these four basic building blocks of belief And so what's the first question? The first question that we're going to think about this morning is this. It's the God question. You could ask it a variety of ways, but how about this? Which God? Which God is God? Which God is the true God? You could say, which God is the God that is the real one that stands behind? Which God is God? And what is he like and how do we know? That's the first question. Okay. The first question is which God. And It's a great question, by the way. When you're talking to someone, do you ever get in this situation where you're talking to someone and then you, you know, the conversation's going along and you want to move it to something a bit more, you know, spiritual. You'd love to sort of talk to them about Jesus a little bit, and, and then you get to that moment, and, and it's always a bit awkward, isn't it? You're going to go, "Ooh, how, how should I say it? Do you believe in God?" Yes and yes. Which God's the real God? Because there's lots of gods in the world. And, and that's, a, that's the point, you see, because if you go to someone and you say, do you believe in God? And their response is, yes, I believe in God. Don't you, let's admit it, don't you feel relieved on the inside? Oh, phew, they believe in God. That's great. We're halfway there. But should we be relieved at that point? Is that job done? Is that, you know, halfway there? Not at all. Because if you say to somebody, do you believe in God? And they say yes, Surely the next question should be which God do you believe in? Do you believe in Allah? Do you believe in Krishna? Do you believe which there's lots of gods around? Which God do you believe in? Or even the other way around, if you say to somebody, do you believe in God? and they say, No, actually, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in God, ask the same question. Which God don't you believe in? And let them describe it, because what you'll find is that when people start describing the God they don't believe in, you probably breathe a sigh of relief and go, Oh, you know what? I don't believe in that God either. Let me tell you about the God I believe in, because, because this is what the God of the Bible's like. You see, we cannot have this idea that God is a self-defining term. We, we can't go out with a clipboard onto the streets of Chippenham and ask people, uh, do you believe in God, and take their answer to mean anything, because there are so many options, and in the Bible... You never find somebody just settling for a sort of general basic set of truths about the ultimate being and calling it God. In the Bible, it's always very specific, which God. And so I want us to think about that, which God. And what we're going to do is we're going to go to the book of Acts. We could go anywhere in the Bible for this subject, but I I thought we'd go to the book of Acts because here we have Paul, the missionary, taking the message of Jesus out uh, into the world. Acts comes after Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Those are the books that tell us about the life of Jesus. All the stories about Jesus, they come from those four books. Uh, and they tell about his life, his ministry, his miracles. They tell about his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection. And then you come to the book of Acts, and Jesus is about to go back up to heaven to be with his father. And, and he says to his disciples, to his followers, he says, He says, Stay here until you receive power, and then you're going to be my witnesses here, Jerusalem, even to the ends of the earth. And so you read through the first chapters of Acts. It's very exciting stuff as the the message of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, goes from person to person. And this group grows and grows, but it's all Jewish. These are all Jewish people with their Old Testaments tucked under their arms, with their Bible stories in their minds, and, and yet they're becoming followers of Jesus. It's great. But then God does two things, two very exciting things that are almost uh, easy to miss because they're so significant, but we just kind of skim over them. In chapter 9, he gets hold of one of those Jews, not a Jewish believer in Jesus, but a Jew who is antagonistic in the extreme. Think of him like a terrorist. His name was Saul of Tarsus. We call him Paul. And Saul was heading to Damascus. He was trying to get hold of people like us, followers of Jesus, grab us and you know, take them into prison and get, that, get them dealt with. And Jesus appeared to Paul. And he turned his life inside out and upside down and he transformed him. And he gave him a commission that he should go and take this message to the nations. Not just the, to the Jews, but to the nations, which includes us. And then next chapter, there's Peter, as in Peter the fisherman, big beard kind of Peter from Jerusalem, one of the big leaders in the church there among the Jews, very, very Jewish. And God shows Peter that actually Gentiles, non-Jews, can become followers of Jesus. They can become included without having to become Jewish first. That was a big deal. God is saying in these chapters, this, this is getting bigger. This is going wider. And people who have never been Jewish, people who've never been trained in the Old Testament, who don't know their Bibles, they can come to have a life in relationship with me through Jesus direct. And so you come to the chapter 13 uh, that follows after those events, and now Paul is being sent as a missionary. He's leaving his church, and he's heading out to tell people about Jesus. But here's the bit where uh, it, it... fascinates me as i've been looking through this everywhere he goes basically he follows the same pattern his strategy was kind of straightforward he'd go to the one place where there would be people ready to listen the synagogue so he'd go to the synagogues like a church for jews right so he'd go to the the jewish group and he'd preach to them and some of them would respond And around the synagogue, there would be some Gentiles, and they were really attracted to what Paul was saying. Uh, If you want to know why, ask me after. But but they were interested and excited about this message. And, And so you've got Jews and you've got Gentiles responding. But then the Jews that didn't respond, they started getting uppity. We were here first this is our synagogue we you know we uh, uh, and they'd get all upset and bent out of shape and basically jealous because Paul got some response and they never did you know and so they they got angry and they chase Paul out of town that was pretty much the pattern time and again but there are two places where Paul goes where we get to see him speaking to people that have no bible knowledge at all these aren't bible trained sunday school trained church trained people these are totally Pagan people, people with no awareness whatsoever of the Bible. We see one incident on the first journey, one on the second. And I want us just to look at those and see what we can learn about Paul's approach. Because I'll tell you what, here's the sneak preview. He answers the question, which God, as of first importance. That's the priority, which God is the real one. So turn with me to Acts chapter 14, first of all. Acts chapter 14 And uh, verse 8, that would be page 780, I think, 780. And so this is the, if you remember the children being up on the stage earlier, this is the, went this way, didn't it? The fourth one. This is the the, the fourth of those locations, a place called Lystra. And so the story starts in verse 8. Paul arrived and there was this man who was crippled in his feet. He couldn't stand up, couldn't walk. He'd been that way for a very long time, and Paul healed him, which is quite staggering in itself. He just you know, did this healing, and he jumps up, and that creates a stir. Now, I don't think that's normal. Okay? I don't think that the Bible presents that as if that's the way it's always going to be. In fact, the Bible doesn't. It teaches us the opposite. It actually isn't the normal pattern, but I think God let that happen or did that deliberately. We see this a few times in the book of Acts where God does something in Jerusalem and he does the same thing with the Gentiles. So back in chapter 3, there was this man who was crippled in his feet. He couldn't walk and Peter and John healed him in the name of Jesus. He goes around walking and leaping and celebrating and, and it created a stir. They ended up getting in trouble and even got arrested for it. But that was in Jerusalem. That was with the Jews. Jews. Guess what? Here we are in pagan Turkey where there's these people that know nothing about God, and he does it again. Why? Because God's saying, I'm prepared to accept non-Jews just as much as Jews. I'm prepared to to bring people who, who live in Chippenham, England, into my family just as much as people who live in Jerusalem, Israel. That's good news for us, right? And so there's this person healed, it creates a stir, and then let's read what happens. The the crowd saw what Paul had done, and they shouted in the Lyconian language, and thankfully it's not written in Lyconian, because I don't think any of us are too fluent in it, but this is what they're shouting. The gods have come down to us in human form. You can imagine this, can't you? Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And so they're, they're assuming that Paul and Barnabas must be gods. And actually, if you think about it, if Paul and Barnabas were out to get rich or famous, this is their breakthrough. I mean, just think about it. If they they played along with this, they could have driven away from Lystra in a Lexus chariot. I mean, they could have really taken advantage of this, right? They could have said, of course they're not going to do that. But actually, it gets worse. Verse 13, the, the priest shows up from the temple of Zeus with with bulls and wreaths and he wants to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. Now that's awkward in the extreme if you're a follower of the one true God, right? And so so what do they say? Do they say, okay, well, we're glad that you're halfway there. You believe in a God. Let's just clarify that Zeus is kind of half incorrect. Not at all. Now they, they resist this whole scene and they rush out into the crowd, ripping their clothes just to show this is so serious. We're just going to rip our clothes in, 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 in upsetness. I can't think of the word. And we're going to, in our upsetness, we're going to rip our clothes and we're going to declare to you that you must not do this. And then we get a three-verse mini-message where they deal with the which God question. Let's look at it. Verse 15 through to 17. And notice what they say about God. Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and he fills your hearts with joy. And and I think they would have carried on. uh, But it says even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Now, which God is a huge deal here? They're not accepting that that these people have a view of God, they just are maybe slightly wrong in calling it Zeus. No, no, no. He's saying turn from that to the living God, the real one. What does he say about this God? Well, several things. He says that he's the living God as opposed to the dead ones, the ones that aren't real. He says that he's the creator, that is the life-giving God. He's the one who's given life to all. gives a hint there at his generosity, everything in the land and the sea. It's God's generous creation. Verse uh, 16, the patient God. That's the sense of what he's saying, that he hasn't stepped in and just crushed people who've gone the wrong way. He's given time. He's been patient. And verse 17, he's kind. He has shown kindness to everyone. The life-giving, generous, patient, kind God. This is the God that Paul declares... To these people. Turn over the page to Acts 17. I want us to to jump up to Athens and see what happens in Athens. This is now the second journey. Uh, Paul is now on this journey without Barnabas. They, they went different ways at the end of chapter 15. And Paul's traveled back through some of those towns that he was in in the first journey. He's headed into Europe. He's gone to three towns sort of further north. He got kicked out of them, ended up down in Athens on his own waiting for his colleagues. And while he's wandering around Athens, he sees all these little statues, all these little gods. He would have seen Zeus. He would have seen Hermes. I wonder if he chuckled to himself, thinking back to his visit to Lystra. I think I look like that. And he would have seen these gods, but he didn't chuckle too much because it distressed him. And then he gets this opportunity where he's brought before the Areopagus. This is kind of the sort of think tank, the, uh, the place where the clever people hang out and chit-chat about whatever they want, you know. And, and he's brought before them, and he has an opportunity to speak. And so here's the question. Which god does he present Does he settle for, they've kind of got some things already figured, let's just add a couple of details, or does he say, no, what you think you know is completely wrong, here's new information, here's the real God, that's what he does. Let's look at what he says, and you'll find that what he says here is basically the same thing he said in Lystra, same set of truths, maybe plus one or two more that will fit in uh, to it as well. So verse 22 through to 24, basically he stands up and he says to them, look, I I see that you've got all these objects of worship. One of them has a sign on it and it says, to an unknown God. Well, now he says, what you worship as something uh, unknown I am going to proclaim to you. So right at the start, he's he's telling them, look, you don't know this God. I want to tell you who he is. And then notice what he says. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by, human, by hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. There is the life-giving creator God who's generous. He goes on, verse 26, from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. He's, he's in charge. He's the Lord. He's the sovereign one. And God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. And he quotes here, "For in him, we live and move and have our being," as some of your own prophets sorry poets have said, "We are his offspring." And so there we're getting the sense of God's generosity, God's kindness, his desire for people to seek Him and to know him." He's been quite specific in this message, isn't he? Verse 29, he keeps going, "Since we are God's offspring, therefore we should, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone." An image made by man's design and skill. What does he think of that? Verse 30. In the past God overlooked such ignorance. That's bold. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. To turn from this worthless stuff. To turn from false gods that aren't true. And to turn to him. He commands people to repent. Such an important concept. I wish we'd understand it. We need to repent. So turn to him. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, you see what Paul's doing here. He's starting with people who know absolutely nothing about the true God. And so he starts describing him and telling them what he's like. He's the life giver. He's generous. He's kind. He's patient. He wants people to find him and to to be in relationship with him. But this isn't some sort of wishy-washy, open-ended, nice offer. There's a time limit. There's a point at which he's going to judge. Actually, it's not God the Father is going to judge, but the man Jesus is going to judge. And God has proven to us that Jesus is who he claimed to be by raising him from the dead. And at that point, they kind of lost it. I think they interrupted, they got worked up. Some of them started mocking and jeering. Oh, this is nonsense. People don't rise from the dead. We know that. Others said, well, you know what? Maybe he's got a point. We, we want to hear more about this because this is interesting. And some of them, it tells us, some of them believed. They became followers of Jesus, including uh, uh, Dionysius and Damaris, named. Why are they named? Because they're still around. And at that point, Luke wanted people to go and chat to them and and hear for themselves what had happened that day. And so here's this presentation of which God. He's the creator. He's living. He gives life as the creator. He's generous. He's kind. He's patient. He's sent us his son. He's going to develop that. Remember earlier in verse 18, we read it before, that Paul was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So Jesus is the focus, and there's a time limit because Jesus is going to judge. But we can know for certain that this is true because Jesus rose from the dead. So the the urge that Paul is giving, the the exhortation to them is turn to God. You can know him. Turn to God. You can have a relationship with him through Jesus. And it's a wonderful message. Now, I think we need to, to learn from Paul first of all we need to recognize that in both lystra and in athens which god was not an assumption that you could just kind of move beyond quickly you had to deal with which god and so he did we need to do the same thing we do not live in victorian britain we do not live in a culture where people can fill in a questionnaire about the god of the bible and get things true and accurate without ever you know believing it themselves anymore We live in a culture where people haven't got the foggiest idea, and it's not their fault. They haven't been told. They haven't grown up with it. And so if we're going to be able to to bring the good news and the message of hope and life and love that God gives us in the Bible, we've got to help people know which God we're talking about. That's critical. Second thought here. We need to recognize a critical lesson from Paul on his source. What is his source of his information? You see, Paul was speaking to this group. It was a mixed group. There were two categories of people included there. There was Epicureans and there were Stoics. And you might say, well, I can't even spell those words. I don't know what those are. Well, they were philosophers. Clear? Good. No, no, you say, hang on a minute. I don't know what philosophers are. I've never studied philosophy. Never been to university and studied philosophy. That's okay. Actually, we're all philosophers at some level, in the sense that that all of us, at a very amateur kind of level, all of us try to make sense of the world. That's what philosophers are trying to do. And here were two groups, two particular groups of philosophers, and if I describe them to you, I think you might recognize them. First of all, the Stoics. The Stoics, they had a certain view of God. You've got to keep in mind that all philosophers are theologians. They're speaking about God and reality. And the Stoics' view of God was that God is like this this predeterminer. He determines everything. And we now live in a world where we need to engage our minds and we need to think clearly. We need to be as rational and as educated as we can be. We we don't want to be too, you know, emotional. Don't get carried away with your emotions. That's dangerous. Uh, And we need to be responsible and we need to be self-sufficient and we need to be obedient if I could caricature it, and please don't get offended by this caricature because it's completely unfair, but if I could caricature it, it's the way that we tend to think of the older generation. Do you know what I mean? Sort of the stiff upper lip. The kind of generation that gets through a war and have our respect for it. So I'm not mocking in any way, but the kind of idea that, that I need to be responsible and I'm going to make good decisions and I'm going to be self-sufficient and I'm going to be obedient and that's the right thing. That's stoic. And here were these Stoic philosophers, and Paul's talking to them. And at the same time, there's Epicureans. Now, Epicureans, they had a view of God, too. Their God was also distant. He was uh, it, or he, this ultimate force, was distant and impersonal. They would say something like this, there is nothing to fear in God. There's nothing to fear in death. Just attain good and endure evil. Basically, live it up. Go for the thrill. Live in the moment. Do what you want. If it feels good, just do it. Can I caricature it again slightly offensively? It's a bit like the younger generation, right? Just live for the now. That's Epicurean. And both of them, both of these groups are philosophers, and they're there ready to chat and debate and go back and forth and argue their assumption and all the rest of it. And Paul's speaking to them, and notice how he speaks to them. First of all, he never quotes the Bible they don't know the Bible. What he does quote is their poets. That's kind of like quoting pop songs or, or, or lines from films. He's kind of speaking their language, right? And he quotes their stuff to help them understand what he's saying. He's, he's brilliantly on target here. In fact, if we had time, which we don't, we could go through every single line of his speech and we could say, oh, look at that. That's for the Stoics, that's for the Epicureans, that's for both, that's for the Stoics, that's for both, that's for the Epicurean. And you'd see that every single thing he said was brilliantly targeted to the people he was speaking to. There's a lesson in that, isn't there? If we're going to communicate the message of which God, we need to know who we're speaking to. It's not enough just to declare truth. We've got to kind of know where people are coming from, and Paul did that brilliantly. And Paul, as he's speaking to them, he's targeting this message... And, and, and I suppose if, if you've heard Acts 17 preached before, you've probably heard that observation that he didn't quote the Old Testament, he did quote their pop songs, you know, and, and so he was very, very targeted. Here's the bit we often miss Paul's quoting their poets, he's not quoting the Old Testament. But this is critical. The source of his information is not philosophy, the source of his information is biblical. From beginning to end, every statement he makes, you can tell that Paul's had his nose in the Bible a lot. Now, why is that so important? Because for hundreds of years, since the time of the New Testament, people have been bringing assumptions about God to the church. They've been bringing assumptions about God based on philosophy, whether they've studied it or not. And they've tried to blend that with the Bible and tried to put it together. And we've ended up with this sort of composite view of God where he's sort of like the philosophical God and sort of like the God of the Bible. But but it kind of becomes a bit awkward. But the the reality is that the gods are very different. The gods, both of the Stoics and the Epicureans, their gods are, are distant and unknowable. The God of the Bible has stepped in and he can be fully known. The God of the philosophers is completely self absorbed. The God of the Bible is completely self giving. The God of the philosophers is, he's like a great big glory grabbing vacuum. He just kind of sucks all glory to him or itself. But the God of the Bible is a glory giver. He gives and he gives and he gives. And so you see that the two gods are very different. And if we try to combine them, we are going to be in trouble. Now, here's how we know if we're doing that. I suspect you haven't gone to, you know, university, studied philosophy, and then written a paper that tries to combine them. I'm not saying that. But when we think that we can start talking about God based on a set of truths before we open this book, we're doing exactly what I'm describing. When we can say, well, okay, this is what we know about God. He's the ultimate kind of supreme being. He's, he's you know, super powerful and he's, you know, he's, he's, everything's for his glory and it's all about him. And, and he's not really, you can't really know him. He's sort of a mystery. Those kind of statements, what am I talking, philosophy or Bible? You can attach Bible verses to those kind of statements. But you see, the mistake we make as humans is that we think we're already somewhere in our heads. We think we've already grasped something about God. When actually God can only be known through his word. And if we want to know God, we need to get into this book and we need to let this book get into us so that we can know him on his terms. So that we can know what he's like. And what we discover is that he's a whole lot like Jesus. When Jesus was asked, Jesus, just show us the father. That's all we need. Just show us the father. That'll be enough. Just give us a glimpse of God is what they were saying. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. If we want to know what God's like, we need to look at Jesus, not look into our thinking or into our assumptions. If we think that we can understand God as a set of abstract truths, we're making a mistake that's philosophical in its its root rather than being biblical and saying, okay, God, I want to know you more. Show me what you're like. And then devour his word as if it's the most important quest of our lives. If we had time, we could think about the Reformation and talk about how Martin Luther... When he stood up and, and resisted the power of the church of Rome, he was standing up primarily, in his terms, the most important issue was the place of philosophy in the training of church leaders. It wasn't indulgences and other stuff. That was a secondary issue. The main issue for him was why are we letting the philosopher influence our church leaders? That makes no sense. He wanted people to get back to their Bibles. That's what we need to do. So please don't, don't think that just because you've never studied philosophy that, the, that the, this is irrelevant to you. It's massively relevant because for a thousand years, maybe longer, the influence of philosophy on the church has been much too great. And the only way we can get away from that is to be people of the book, to come to know God on his terms, to let this determine our understanding of who he is, not with a set of assumptions already in place, but on his terms. One more comment about Paul before we wrap up. As well as his passion to declare which God, there's also his source of his information, the fact that he's thoroughly biblical. We need to learn from that. I want us to notice one more thing. Notice his manner, his tone. In verse 16, it says that as Paul was walking around in Athens, he was distressed. When he saw these idols. That that word distressed it means he was provoked, he was angered on the inside. He was stirred up. He's seeing all these gods and, and it made him upset because the people are being deceived and confused and kept away from the truth, and he was livid. I wonder if we have that reaction to our culture. In some ways we should. As we look around us and we see the lies that are being presented and the emptiness of life, the way it's offered by the media, it should stir within us anger because it's not the truth and people are being kept away from the beautiful, glorious reality of knowing God for themselves. It should make us so angry. But notice verse 22 and 23. Notice that when Paul stands up and speaks to them, his tone is not angry his manner is not aggressive he says men of athens i see that in every way you're very religious that's a compliment he could have said that much more harshly couldn't he and then he says for as i walked around and looked uh, carefully at your objects of worship now what does he think they are demonic idols (laughs) He's angry about the idols, but he refers to them as very neutrally objects of worship. You see, there's a tone in Paul's manner that fits the God that Paul's presenting. He's presenting a God who's giving and gracious and kind and patient. And he presents him in a way that fits. I think that's such a critical lesson for all of us. Maybe you're visiting today, and maybe you've been to church before, and maybe, I don't know whether it was 50 years ago or, or whenever, whether it was long time or recent, whether it was in another country or another church, maybe a different denomination, doesn't matter, maybe it was here, wherever it was, if you've been in a church before, and the preacher has presented the message of the gospel, and you have felt like he was just angry, you know what I mean, just kind of barking at you, and he just seemed to come across all tense. I just want to say sorry to you. I want to apologize on behalf of the church because that is not what we see Paul doing here. We should be angry when we see the state of society and the things that are going on and the lies. It should anger us, but we should represent God in a way that fits his character. There's no excuse. We should represent him graciously instead of aggressively. We should represent him winsomely instead of harshly but we should represent him in a way that hopefully will draw people to him instead of making people feel like they're the kind of the enemy and they they need to back away to stay safe. And so I'm sorry if you've heard presentations of the gospel that just kind of came across angry. It's not biblical. As we preach, as we share, as we talk to our neighbors, our colleagues, our friends, as we talk to them about God, let's remember we're representing a specific God. And our tone, our manner, our smile, our our graciousness, our generosity, our lifestyle, everything about us should represent the kind of God that He is. And so, which God is the real God? Which God is the true God? And how do we know? Do we get our information from his word that he's given to us to reveal himself? Do we get our understanding by looking to Jesus, the one who is uh, fully God and fully man, fully revealing the Father to us? Do we get our understanding from that? Or do we bring our, our, our ideas from elsewhere, our own cleverness, our own sophistication, the way we've put things together? That just seems so risky, doesn't it? Which God is the real God and what is he like? And as we represent him to others, let's make sure that what they see in us will reflect what he's like. That our gracious, kind, generous, warming, warm winsomeness would reflect his character and his personality that by being winsome, we might, you know, win some. Because that's the hope. The hope is that people can Come to have hope in Christ and come to know the God who gives life and who forgives sins and who brings people into relationship with him. And it's the greatest message this world has ever known. And unless we drill down and address the issue of which God is God, then if we haven't got that straight, everything else is going to be shaky. Which God is God?